You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Pamela Paul. Hello, Pamela. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber calling. How are you? I'm good. Pleasure to hear from you. It's so good to speak to you. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really delighted we're having this call and delighted that we will be speaking about your book, My Life with Bob, and maybe many other things. What am I catching you in the middle of? You are catching me in the middle of, this is a little embarrassing, but I am signing copies of my book um, that I, I have to sign for my publisher. So I was literally right in the middle of my very own book, which is slightly mortifying. Do you, do you go a lot on, on book tours? I don't go a lot on book tours these days because I have a full-time job here at the New York Times where I uh, edit the book review um, as well as oversee books coverage throughout the time. So that's a kind of tough job to leave behind for a long period of uh, long stretches of time. I was recently in Australia actually for the uh, both for the Times and for the Sydney Writers Festival. So that took up uh, a good chunk of what might have been my book tour and in a way was was my book tour. And did you enjoy it? Oh my god, I loved it. You know, the Australians are amazing readers. I they are so enthusiastic and so literate. The bookstores there are phenomenal. There isn't, uh, Amazon has not come to Australia yet. There's a tremendous tradition of independent bookselling and some local chains. And at the Sydney Writers Festival, you get crowds of hundreds of people to see authors from, you know, doing everything from indigenous, you know, aboriginal poetry to writing on the patriarchy to going to see Tom Friedman. And nearly all of these talks are sold out. And there was one instance where I was talking about my book, and it looked like the audience kind of knew what I was talking about. I was talking about the book Wild Swans, this memoir that Jung Chung wrote about, wrote in 1991, I think it came out, and I wrote about it in My Life with Bob. And so I asked the audience, you know, just with a show of hands, how many of you have read this book? And I would say that 80% of the audience, of about 500 people, raised their hands, which I, I can't even fathom another audience where that would have happened. How exciting. And, and how exciting, you know, I ask you the question about, about book tours, because in, in a sense, in my life with Bob, you allude to this whole notion of what it means to meet a writer and how, how it can both be exciting and uh, dangerous. So, you know, you, you meet, you meet uh, your heroes, and in many ways, part of what you do when you read is you live in solitude, and then you make what is a private act into a public appearance, and it can, it can contain seeds of disappointment. It can, but it's interesting because, I mean, especially now, I approach it in such a different way because I'm both, I'm editing these writers um, in, in my work here at the Times. I'm reading them as a, as a reader. And then professionally, I'm also a writer, so I can relate to them, although I don't, you know, compare myself with the greats. So I, I sort of perceive them on these multiple levels. Even the greatest writer, when you're editing them, 
you don't think of them as necessarily the greatest writer, you know, you're also thinking about the things that, that need um, editing. Um, and when you're approaching them as a reader, of course, you're seeing them in a very different light. So it's interesting to, uh, you know, have these very different kind of lenses through which to uh, view writers, whereas when I was a child and for much of my even young adult life, I mean, the writers were just on another plane of being to me. I mean, these were my rock stars much more than any actual rock stars. You know, I'm, I'm always reminded when I, when I think about reading about an extraordinary line that the great English psychoanalyst Winnicott uh, used in an essay called The Contribution of Mothers to Society. He says that the goal is um, for the child to be alone in the presence of the mother. And I've often thought that that is an extraordinary definition of reading. You're alone, but you're nurtured and you're heard. It's, uh, I, oh, I love that definition of, of motherhood, first of all. Yes. I think it's completely true um, as a mother of three children. I, you know, what's interesting, I, I, and I think that that could be said um, of the relationship between readers and authors. I think also what's interesting to me is that every reader reads every, you know, each author in a very different way. So the experience of the book is different for every single reader. And that's one of the reasons, of course, that we have reviews and that they are all um, often, you know, very different from one another. There's uh, even, even when there's agreement that a book is great, there people perceive different aspects of the book that, that uh, speak to them. And one of the things I find interesting when, when a reader encounters a writer is that the reader will often tell the author, well, you know, this is what your book was about. And for the author, that's not what the book necessarily was about. Um, so you have to kind of, there's that, that it's all in the perception, it's all in the reading, it's in that space in between the reader and the author uh, to determine what is the actual meaning of the book. So you might have a, a writer, or a reader rather, go up to an author at, on book tour and say, you know, I love the fact that this book was about redemption. And the author will, you know, think to himself, I didn't write at all about redemption. Yeah, really, really? Was it really about redemption? It's it's interesting because so often in, in reviews, and I've spoken to a few writers who have said this to me, they will read a review and they will read in the review all the writers that supposedly had influenced them. And they they often come up with a very interesting reading list for themselves because they've never actually read or been influenced by any of these writers. So we bring, we bring to our own reading our whole reading list. And, and that, of course, is co-substantial with my life with, with Bob, which is the story in some form or fashion of your reading life. You might want to say something about this, and then I have all kinds of questions for you. All right, yes. No, it's exactly that subjectivity. It's the fact that every person, for each person, each book is different. That, that reading experience is unique to each person. So My Life with Bob is a book about Bob, a book of books, literally that acronym, um, that I've been keeping of every um, book that I've read since I was 17. And the um, for me, it's frankly the only diary that I've successfully kept. And both in terms of the books themselves and in the trajectory of the path that took me from one book to the next and why I chose that book um, is a kind of parallel narrative to the narrative of my life. So My Life with Bob the Book is not about 
specifically really the details of those books. It's about the experience of reading those books and the ways in which those books then influenced my own life, infiltrated my, my thinking, sometimes dictated or influenced at least my life choices, um, and vice versa, how what I was going through in my life, whether it was a new job or a move or living abroad or a marriage, then affected what I was choosing to read and how I read it. You know, it's so interesting, this notion of keeping a list of all the books one has read. Um, one of one of the most important writers for me when I was growing up was Walter Benjamin, who had kept this extraordinary list of every single book he read since he was eighteen years old. And then I then I come upon your book, which is in a way, the, as you say, a successful diary of your reading life. And I'm reminded of this this line, which has always haunted me, of Umberto Eco, who says. We make lists because we don't want to die. Wow! <laughs> and and I'm 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 wondering, um, you know, beyond your wow, which I agree with, what this conjures up for you, the the Pamela Paul list maker for the last few decades. Well, I don't want to die, um, <laughs> but I that it didn't occur to me when I was when I was doing that for me. Um, and it's interesting because my husband is reading an Umberto Eco novel right now. So, really, you see, it? I mean, and and this gets us into to the subject that we just simply can't stop once we once we've unleashed this power of speaking about any book. So many others come to our mind, and so many others come to our mind. I mention Echo to you, and you're talking to me now about the reading life of your husband. Anyway, I don't want to interrupt. No, but that's exactly it. It's the fact that you know our personal lives are are intermixed with our reading lives and, and what, what the way that, that my life with Bob kind of started is that um, I you know began it when I was a teenager and what was going on during adolescence was not frankly all that um, pleasing. <laughs> so often my reading was a form of escape and this diary other than you know different from previous diaries I'd kept wasn't full of teenage angst and you know petty fights and problems, um, but was rather what I was reading while all of that was happening. So it was where I would rather be rather than where I actually was. Um, how do you classify your books? In terms of how do I choose to read them or how do I shelve them in my house or how do I rate them in my mind? All of that, but let let me start with a question I had in mind. Um, I remember that Roland Barthes once said that, tell me how you classify and I will tell you who you are. And I'm I'm curious, you, you receive an enormous amount of books and you write down the books that have mattered to you. And how do you shelve them? Where do you put them? What is the folly of contiguity on your on your on your shelves? How do they how do they find a home in your home? Well, well, my shelves are you know a reflection of God. In a way, it's my worst way of of, of dealing with books because I don't have them well organized. I've tried to organize them, and and 
they always kind of uh, recede into chaos, no matter how hard. I try to put all the Penguin classics with the orange bindings, you know, side by side, or to put contemporary literature, to get all of one novelist, because I'm constantly playing with them. Um, what I like about that disorder is that it, al- it, it allows that element of surprise and serendipity when I'm then looking over my shelves and trying to figure out what I'm going to read next. Um, I don't know where everything is, and that enables me to be surprised, which I which I like because I think, especially nowadays, so much of our attention is highly directed. So if you look online, for example, and you use social media, you're following the news that you've chosen to follow, or you're tuning into the radio news source that you choose to tune into. And it's very different from the way in which we used to get information from a print newspaper, for example. When you open up a spread in the newspaper, you don't know what's going to be in the upper left hand and in the up, you know, lower right hand. So you're exposed to stories in an unexpected way, and that's constantly opening your mind. So the disorder of my shelves I like to think of as the best aspect of a print newspaper and that I'm not entirely sure what my gaze is going to land on. And then sometimes that surprises me and I find that I, I, I want to read something that I didn't necessarily set out to read and I can discover that in my shelves in the same way that I might find something unknown and unexpected in a you know, used bookstore. So tell me, what, what has been a, a recent discovery that you have made in your bookcases, um, given the fact that they, they, they live in, a, in, in, in what you call the worst part of yourself, but in, in, a, in a sense, maybe the very willful part of yourself not to provide an order so that it might afford you a discovery? Well, you know, the worst thing I find in a way is when um, I, I, I don't find something on my bookshelves that I, I, that I want to read because I do have an enormous number of books now. I get a huge amount through uh, work, and I'm just a collector of books. I'm constantly buying books. I'm really hopeless so that even while I get all of these new books for free through my work, I'm also still spending, and I know this because I do my taxes and tally it up every year, you know, thousands of dollars on books every year, which is just, you know, ridiculous. Um, and But what a joy. <laughs> it is a joy. I really do. I love the physical object of the book, and I, and, and, and I will end up with sometimes four editions of the same book. Um, and sometimes, you know, one signed, um, you know, and one not, and one a UK cover, and one an American cover, and etc. So it's, it's really hopeless. And, w- and when you say you love the physical aspect, you mean the tactile f- uh, uh, pleasure one gets, the tactile inebriation one gets from touching books. From touching them, from smelling them, from the typeface, from the cover. I mean, to me, I don't read electronically. The idea of, of being told what percentage I am through a book as opposed to being able to see the amount of pages I've read versus the amount of pages, you know, remaining or flipped back and forth. I just, I, I, I really couldn't do it. I, I could do it, but it would, it would, it would leach so much pleasure from the process that I, I wouldn't want to. Um, and the book that I'm reading now is one actually that I didn't own, um, but was recommended to me. And, um, so I got it from the library. And it's such a wonderful edition. It, it, it's sort of awful and great at the same time. It's an old library edition. It's from 1945, a copy of Betty McDonald's memoir, The Egg and I. I don't know if you, if you know this. No, not that I don't know either uh, the writer or the book. So tell me something about it. And I love, of course, I love the description, both wonderful and awful, or however, whatever words you might have used. Well, I'll tell you 
you that this why I call it awful and wonderful. The book itself is 100% wonderful, but the edition that I have, which is an old library edition, it must have lost its cover at some point. So they've recovered it in a totally generic cover. There's absolutely no design at all, which I, I kind of hate. Um, but what I do love is that someone, I may be a librarian, at some point sort of taped on the inside cover um, a piece of paper with really no description, um, but with some very old blurbs from newspapers that no longer exist. So there's a quote from the New York Herald Tribune book review and from, you know, the Chicago News. And the main quote is by uh, reviewer Cliff Boutel at the New York Post, at the NY Post. Um, and it's a book about a, a writer who um, moves out uh, and starts a chicken farm with her husband outside of Seattle. Um, and it must have been in the late 30s or the early 40s. And it's completely transporting in terms of, of time and place, which I would say is probably the number one thing I look for, for in a book, to experience something that in my life I, I cannot ever experience because I'm not there and I could never be there because it's either in the past or in the future or in some other world or other experience. You know, um, it, this reminds me of, of a conversation I once upon a time had with one of the Supreme Court judges, Stephen Breyer, who told me that his mother, when he became Supreme Court justice, his mother told him that he had to continue to read novels because it was the only way in which he could possibly put himself in the shoes of someone else, however uncomfortable they may be. I agree with that 100%. I mean... I, I often say that, um, you know, that, that it's impossible in, in one lifetime to experience, you know, everything. Obviously, I think that, that, and one of the things I try to show in this book is that you can kind of experience multiple types of, 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 of or ways of life throughout your, the own course of your lifetime. But I could never be um, a coal miner in 19th century France. Um, but I can experience what that might be like if I read the Laws Germinal. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I could never live on Pluto, but, you know, or in um, some kind of dystopian uh, future world. But you can if you read a novel. That's right. I mean, you can in some way have empathy, a, a kind of empathy that maybe you won't even have in your in your own life. And I'm wondering now, one one aspect of reading that, strikes me always as so important is how our taste changes uh, through our own process of aging and the relationship between taste and age has always fascinated me and i wonder when you when you look back at the list you keep in bob are there books there that you simply wonder to yourself how could i possibly have loved them and then adjoined to that question is a notion, when we reread something, what do we remain faithful to? What are those books that in some way, regardless of the age we find ourselves in, still speak to us? Are there such books for you? Well, for one thing, my list of books, my, my book of books, isn't a list of all the books that I enjoyed or of all the books that mattered to That's me. It's right. also a list of the books that I hated and that I couldn't care less about, but that I had nothing else to read. They were books of desperation. Um, there's a period where I backpacked through China for six weeks um, by myself in 1994 on a 
you know, budget of $15 a day. So I wasn't buying any books. I was only taking what I could get from the sort of giveaway um, shelves of the tiny little hostels and, you know, places that I was staying in along the way or bartered with other uh, travelers that I met. And so I was really subject to whatever I could get my hands on and, and therefore read a bunch of things that I really didn't like. Um, and also, I, it was a really tough time. Um, so I found myself reading a lot of, you know, kind of outdated mainstream bestsellers in mass market format that I never would have picked up um, if I'd had some other choice or others been in a different circumstance. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that I, I think that what, what changes for me with age is the way in which um, I read a book so or, you know, a, a, a specific book and how that might change um, over time. And I do very little rereading because I'm there's so much for me that I still feel I have left to read. But the few novels that I have reread, I find it really interesting the extent to which the experience of the same story can change depending on your own age. So one example is Thomas Mann's Budenbrooks, which Mann wrote when he was 25. I know. It's, it's, it's very, very annoying, isn't it, to think it's, it's that so he... It's Anytime you have any kind of, you know, ambition or, or feel like this shred of self-confidence, you just, you remember that fact and it just, it all goes away. Yeah. It, it's, you know, just such a masterful novel and, and, and it, what's so incredible is that he's so young and I read it when I was about 25 and you, you know even then that, that he gets something that you could never get and of course the book is about the, the decline of a family of the course of several generations and he hadn't experienced any of the things that his characters had gone through. He hadn't gone through aging and disappointment and parenthood and grandparenthood and all of these things that he described with such incredible emotional acuity. So I then went back and I reread it after I'd gone through some of those things and, you know, I'd been married and divorced and remarried and children. And, and I reread it, um, I think, in my late 30s to, to kind of ask myself, well, did he really get it or did I just think that he got it because I was the same age? And no, in fact, you know, it's even more brilliant when you when you've gone through these things to realize how um, amazingly uh, you know astute he was in grasping emotions of people who'd had life experiences far beyond the experiences he personally could have had at that time as um, as a book editor uh, of the New York Times Sunday book um, section I'm wondering if if you had to say what what you most want readers to feel after they've closed those pages, also given the fact that there's so few book reviews, do you have a sense of the the kind of experience you would want them to have most when they close when they finish reading a review? Wow, I want them to experience so many things. Um, you know, ultimately. When you read the book review in its entirety, you come away with, I would hope, first of all, um, maybe some idea of what you might want to read next, but that's not even necessarily the primary takeaway. Really what you want them to have, have enjoyed, uh, you know, to have gotten out of that is, is enjoyment and information and enrichment from the reading experience itself. Now, I hate to say yes, that, yes. True, that the book review itself, of course, is an art form, and it's not necessarily just a guide. It's not a thumbs up, thumbs down to that book. It should be a piece of excellent writing in and of itself. And many people will read the review, frankly, so that they don't have to read the book. Um, the, 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 the review itself is substance enough. Now, if they go ahead and then read the book, excellent. 
excellent. But in my role as the editor of the book review, I'm more concerned with that bit of writing than I am with whether they then go on to read the book or not. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, of two stories. One of them is Once Upon a Time I Had Occasion to, to Speak with Pierre Bayard, who wrote a book called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. Um, and I actually paired him together with Umberto Eco once again, because there's a chapter in the book um, about the name of the rose, which he had never read but spoke about at great lengths. And then in a former life, I, I taught at, at various universities, and I had this wonderful student, truly wonderful student. He always said things that were slightly off. And one day, in front of a hundred students or so, I just said, Michael, have you in fact read Bartleby the Scrivener? And he said, not personally. Funny, I, I, my children have not read Bartleby the Scrivener, but they know it well enough to answer me when I make certain requests. With I'd prefer not to. But do, do you do you feel that they they, I mean, do you feel the urge to tell them that they should read it, or do you feel the urge to tell people you must read this and that? You know, I I I try not to. I really do try to suppress that because I know from my own experience that as much as I do love recommendations, I almost never follow up on them or I certainly never follow up on them right away. And the reason for that is that for me, reading is so much about my mood in a given moment or my curiosity or my need at that given moment, which is why as much as I would love to sort of plan out my reading in advance and say I'm going to read this and then this and then this, I almost never do. I'd never follow up on those kinds of plans of I'm going to read all, you know, history or all memoir this month or anything like that because it's not until I finish reading a book and I kind of take my, my sort of emotional, intellectual, you know, personal temperature at that moment that I know what it is that I need to read next. You know, it, it, it strikes me that if you, if you have your book in, in front of you, since you've been signing some, um, I'd love you to read the, the, the first pages precisely on recommending books. There's a chapter in, in your, in your book, um, which is all about recommendations and perhaps also the, um, the way in which recommendations sometimes can feel as a burden. Yes. So that chapter is called The Master and Margarita after the Bulgakov novel. And um, it is about the uh, sort of fraught nature of book recommendations and the fact that, you know, if somebody says, hey, you've got to read this book, it's often as much as about the recommender or about the relationship between the two people as it is about that particular book, which is not to say that, look, people don't enthuse and word of mouth we know is a huge force of nature, but this is about all the other underlying messages that can go in to that. And I, and I tell this by uh, describing the relationship between one of my older brothers, Roger, and um, myself. Um, so I'll, I'm going to start a little bit in here. Um, Do, uh, please. With my brother Roger, book recommendations were imperatives that one needed to heed, and I wasn't sure I'd be his sister anymore if I didn't listen. Roger had trained me to follow his lead early on. When we were little, he lorded over our younger brother Brian and me, and whenever we violated one of his codes, his right index finger would shoot high into the air in a brutal display of power. Suspension! He'd announce, drawing out the second syllable to savor our anguish. What's the suspension? What's the suspension? We would babble frantic. 
One week's no Atari, Roger would say with cool matter-of-factness, as if he'd just consulted the rule book. One week, no monster manual, no comic books. As he got older, Roger's laws transitioned from not letting me touch any of his books to foisting his books upon me. If I didn't follow his bidding, there would be trouble. One weekend, we had to go to a bar mitzvah in Colorado. Read this now, he said when we got there, handing me a copy of John Kennedy Tools, The Confederacy of Dunces. I don't want to speak to you until you're done. In the year 2000, to celebrate the new millennium, I made a deal with Roger, one in which I, for once, would dictate the book. If he read War and Peace, I would read War and Peace. And as a reward, I would fly the two of us to Russia for a vacation. There we would discuss the Bezikovs and the Bolonkovskis. Sorry, excuse my uh, pronunciation here. I'm going to mess up all these names. The Bolkonskis, the Rostovs, and the Kurigans, the Dubretskoys, and Napoleon and Waterloo, and whether it was better than Anna Karenina, which he told me to read years earlier, while hurtling by train from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Roger had long been my comrade in arms when it came to Russian literature. On a trip to Portland to visit our cousin Kirsten, he shoved into my hands Mikhail Bulgakov's Soviet-era satire, The Master and Margarita. We'll talk when you're done, he said. And because I respected his taste, and possibly because I still feared his suspension, I obeyed. Now I would be able to repay Roger as we walked through the patriarch ponds and checked out the graffiti on Bulgakov's house, reimagining scenes in which the devil comes to Moscow. Everyone intends to read War and Peace eventually. I was doing Roger a favor. The Russia trip gave us an excuse. Roger would read his copy in San Francisco, and I would read mine in New York. I tried reading it several years earlier and given up around page 100, lost. This time I bought an edition with a crucial edition, an edition with a crucial edition, a family tree. Aided by this handy patronymic roadmap, I could be swept into the narrative without forgetting who everyone was. Sure, um, sorry, the secret that Russian literature aficionados somehow managed to keep from the rest of the world, daunted by names like Tostoevsky and Turgenev, is that Russian novels are essentially soap operas. Sure, there's the background of the 19th century to contend with, but at heart, Russian novels are stories of unrequited love, lusty affairs, and diehard feuds. Even the long ones can feel too short. War and peace would be no problem. On it, Roger told me every time I called to make sure he was keeping up his end of the bargain. We both reveled in the darkly gleeful slapstick of Russian satire. I knew he would love it. I see myself in every lowly and ill-used clerk from Kolvolyov to Golyadkin, and my brother does too. I tore through war and peace that month, and come March, we set off for the motherland. Everything was going according to plan. I couldn't wait to talk over our Tolstoy. I didn't read it, Roger confessed, once the plane reached cruising altitude, but I meant to. How wonderful. Um, does this relationship continue in this manner? Uh, it does, yes. Yeah, I've given up somewhat on Roger, I have to say, um, although I do hope he reads this book. I suspect he will uh, once he realizes how much he's in it. It's... it's um... I mean, we have also this longing. I mean, we postpone certain pleasures, certain books we believe. I mean, you mentioned War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and, you know, one could think about the possessed. And the, I mean, for many people, I, I, I suppose it's uh, in search of lost time. We, we postpone partly because we believe that we won't die and that we will have the time 
to read these books, that we will have a moment where we will have pure attention. And that moment seems never really to come. No, you know, I, I live in a kind of uh, permanent um, delusion that one day I will have checked everything off my list of things to do, and at that moment that I will then finally get to settle down and to read everything that I want to read, that, you know, I'll have this sort of pure free time to catch up on everything, to go back and to read, you know, every single, uh, you know, of the Palliser novels and to go back and to reread War and Peace and Anna Karenina and, and you know, um, all of the minor, you know, Tolstoy short stories, not really minor because they're Tolstoy. Um, and it, of course, it never, it, it'll never come. And I, I, one of the things that, that um, I think is apt about um, my book of books is that it started inadvertently. The first book I entered when I was 17 was Kafka's The Trial, which of course is a book that was never finished. Um, so it's a kind of sad metaphor, uh, or maybe it's not sad, but it is to me, um, that you never, you never, you're never finished reading, you're never finished writing, the, my book of books will probably not get filled up, I write in this very small handwriting, and I, I write in that small handwriting because I used to worry that I would get to the end, and, and then it would be done, um, and now I worry that I'll die before I finish it. Well, one day, um, I hope you have occasion to see the book of books that Walter Benjamin put together. He had a microscopic uh, handwriting, and there are thousands and thousands of entries. And I think in part he had a microscopic um, handwriting because he believed that as a wandering Jew, reality had to be portable. That's funny. I, I, you know, I, I mean, it's not funny, but, but what I focus in on, of course, my competitive nature is, is, is the thousands of thousands and, and, and um, being at once impressed and envious that you have to read so many books. Of course. And, and I, I will also remark that in My Life with Bob, um, you have right on the title page, you have a page of uh, a copy of your book of books. And indeed, the first one one sees is a trial. The second one one sees is Slaughterhouse Five and so on and so forth. What is the one book that you feel you must read and that you haven't read and that you think you will read in the next 10 years? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's it's probably not fiction, um, but I'm halfway through uh, Robert Caro's um, long um, biography, multi-volume biography of Johnson, and um, I, I haven't read volume three, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the longest, I think, um, and of course, volume four is out, but he hasn't even um, finished volume five, so it, it, I'm going to cheat a little bit by saying the next three volumes of Caro's book, um, uh, biography of, of Lyndon Johnson. In, in closing, Pamela, I'd like you to to tell me a little bit more about the Invisible Institute. Oh, the Invisible Institute, um, which I love. <laughs> it, it really, it really made me dream. But I want to know a little bit more. You know, who runs it? Who the treasurer is, and what it is altogether. So the Invisible Institute is a group that formed um, in the early aughts. Um, we were all a group of writers, and um, you know, when you're writing a book, you're working in almost total isolation. Maybe not now for a lot of writers. There are all kinds of communal work spaces, um, but. Uh, for me at the time, I was writing alone and I was meeting other, um, 
uh, authors socially who were also writing alone, and we realized, you know, every time we had a conversation, there was this incredible exchange of information, and a lot of that information was not about the craft. It was about the sort of process of, 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 of writing and being published and what that was like and the fact that, you know, you're, you're sort of this very hopeless, um, it, it's like getting your car repaired where the mechanics tell you what's wrong with the car, they diagnose it, they tell you what's involved, they tell you the cost, and you're not really in any kind of position to negotiate because you don't have the information available. And that's a little bit like the experience of a first-time author um, in the publishing process when you're going from agent to editor to publicist and you don't really understand what everything is um, and, you know, why your book is being published in Poland but not Korea and why you're, you know, not on the Oprah or, you know, the Today Show or right. Charlie Rose or whatever it might be. Um, so we, we banded together um, and started to meet on a monthly basis and exchanged information sort of on the fly. And, you know, we weren't, we, we called ourselves the Invisible Institute. We felt invisible. We didn't really, it, you know, there's this paradoxical thing with writers in that, you know, writers are generally introverted people. In fact, one of the members of the, of the book club, not at the, uh, sorry, of the Invisible Institute, not at the beginning, but she joined later on, was Susan Cain, the author of um, Quiet, uh, the un, you know, spoken power of yes. Um And, uh, you know, she, of course, joined the right place because we were all, Introverts. Um, so the, uh, you know, the, the sort of paradoxes of being a writer is that you are you're someone who lives inside your own head. Um, but of course, once you commit your writing to the page, you're then out there, and you're very much out there today. You know, you're accessible on the internet and through book tours and all kinds of. There's all kinds of ways in which you become more of a public figure, even though most of us, you know, are kind of private in, by nature. Um, so the Invisible Institute met um, every month. Uh, for dinner, and uh, after a while, we started to bring in special guests who uh, we thought could sort of enlighten us um, with this process. And sometimes they were people from publishing or from other forms of media or writers who had worked successfully for decades. Um, and all of us were nonfiction writers, by the way. Um, and of course, when I became the editor of the book review, I had to with- withdraw for obvious reasons of conflict of interest from the Invisible Institute. We had had this, this group, Google Mail, uh, uh, that, uh, where we exchanged ideas in between our meetings, and for a while they forgot to take me off the list. I would sur- surreptitiously peek in, and then I, I let them know, you know, after a few days I felt very guilty and told them, you know, you've got to get me off here. So I have no idea what goes on there. I don't know who the current members are um, because they, a lot of us sort of rotate and rotated out people moved or might, you know, gone on to do different things um, or become too busy. So they are going on without me. I know that much, but I am no longer part of them. It's so complicated, this issue, and it brings us back to to where we started, which is this notion of, of reading as being such a solitary activity, and yet the urge, really the urge that comes quite naturally from this solitary activity to want to and sometimes perhaps to dramatically in the forms of recommendation, you have to read this, to want to share that passion. When at the same time, one of the great pleasures of that passion is to have it all to oneself. Yes, I mean, reading is at once a solitary activity, but it's also a kind of connection because you're connecting with the author. 
and you're connecting with the characters. And then you're also connecting indirectly with all the other people out there in the world reading that same book so that you can have a child, a 16-year-old girl in Nigeria reading a Jane Austen novel at the same time, maybe even on the same page as a stay-at-home mother of four in Indiana is reading that same Jane Austen novel. So they're connected. They're both in a relationship with the same characters and with the same author. And probably those relationships are nonetheless very different. And the way in which they're reading those stories are very different. It's, it's such a lovely thought to, to leave you with and to leave everyone with that, you know, there are people in different parts of the world reading the same page at the same moment, maybe the same sentence at the very same moment. And of course, understanding it, feeling it, uh, imagining whatever it is that the author is trying to make them imagine in a very, very different way. Pamela, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, likewise. Really such a pleasure. And, and best of luck with your, with your list. And I, I hope it goes on from now to eternity. Oh, thank you, Paul. I will try. Okay, do your best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.